You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Father Romanus Cesario. This is the sixth and final lecture in a series entitled The Elements of Moral Theology. It is being filmed at St. John's Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts, where I teach moral theology and is part of the offerings of the International Catholic University under the direction of Professor Ralph McInerney at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. The series has examined certain issues that are indispensable for the moral theologian, for the student of moral theology. In the last series, we came to the question of evaluation of moral action and how to do it. In particular, we spoke about a threefold analysis based upon the object of an action or its, if you will, moral object, the personal intention or meaning that the person who commits the action brings to bear on to the action, which in the catechetical language of the Catholic Church is called its end. And finally, the circumstances or historical contingencies in which any given action is perforce found. This procedure for analyzing a moral action is part of what we have been calling the big picture of moral theology. That is to say, it assumes man set between God and God, set between God who is our origin and in whose image we have been made, and God who is at the same time our final perfection, and happiness, beatitude. He is that beatitude by his gracious plan in Christ to introduce us into the communion of the saints and into friendship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's creative action is not only responsible for everything that exists, and indeed for sustaining whatever exists in being. God's creative power is also responsible for the divine governance of the universe, and that extends to our moral actions, each of which possesses a form 
that has its identity or finds its identity in the divine mind, which the tradition has called eternal law. At the end of the last session, I said that no one wants to find him or herself in a state of contradiction with how God knows the world to be, which is my short description of eternal law. We use the term knowledge, how God knows the world to be, because the theological tradition affirms that it is God's knowledge of things that is at the origin of their very being. The temptation, of course, in moral theology would be to interpret eternal law as how God wills us to act, and there are moral theologians who very fruitfully develop that line of reflection. But inasmuch as we are taking our lead from the moral theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, whose image is found in the apse of the seminary chapel here at St. John's. Aquinas is ranked among the doctors of the church of both East and West. Indeed, he was in the 16th century the first Christian teacher to be so ranked. And his authority in theology, especially in moral theology, continues to enjoy influence in Catholic teaching. In any event, to the extent that we follow Aquinas, we can talk about the eternal law as how God knows the world to be, and we can make the point, hopefully, well, that no person would want to find himself in opposition to that divine creative knowledge any more than, for example, personal ingenuity or creativity or even choosing could make sense out of the proposal to plant a tree upside down with its branches buried in the fruit and the rich soil and its roots exposed to the sun and rain. That kind of proposal would be greeted with ridicule by many people precisely because it so clearly goes against how God knows the world to be because this same eternal law is responsible for the fact that trees are meant to be planted with the roots in the ground and their leaves in order to absorb the elements of sky and air. It's a crude example, and yet it illumines the situation of the sinner, who by going against the order that God has established for our happiness and our perfection, chooses, because an action must flow from the choice of the active choice of a person in order to qualify as a sin. 
In any event, the sinner chooses a course of action that is not directed towards the end, but rather falls short of it, and in the case of mortal sin, to use Catholic catechetical language, falls short in a definitive way, falls short in a grave or serious way. This brief resume of how to approach the evaluation of a moral action makes sense, better sense perhaps, if we understand another aspect of the big picture, and this will be the final lesson in this series of six lectures on the elements of moral theology. And this aspect now returns us to the acting person, him or herself, whom we have been accustomed to call, or give the name, I should say, the nickname, imago, the Latin term for image, because it is very important to know that just as the tree has a certain nature that requires that it be planted in the ground, so the human creature, man, has a certain nature that for the moral theologian is defined as a nature after the image of God. Human nature composed of spirit and matter, body and soul together, man made in the image of God, and that mark, if you will, that imaging, means that the human person is set on a course of perfection that includes the invitation to divine friendship, the invitation to enter into beatific communion with the Blessed Trinity, and that no other end, purpose, goal, objective in life will fully satisfy the creature made in the image of God. The significance, however, of our being made in the divine image comes to into greater light when we consider the virtues of the Christian life, when we consider that God has not left us as raw nerves of acting choices, that is to say, he has not left us as exposed wills whose only function is to cling to the good and to avoid evil. No, he has created us as human persons, body and soul, and with powers or capacities, sometimes called faculties of the human soul, that sink into the fabric of our material being, our sense 
faculties, sense powers, sense appetites in particular, and that he has made us in such a way that those powers, capacities, faculties as they're sometimes called, are able to be shaped and molded in a certain way so that in the course of our human development and in the course of a series of choices, we become strengthened in choosing the good and avoiding evil. Now I am happy to say at this juncture in the lecture that a fuller treatment of what now I can only present in a most summary fashion is found in a book that is available from the University of Notre Dame Press, a book I authored some years ago entitled The Moral Virtues and Theological Ethics. It is a treatise on moral theology in order to introduce the text into the broadest possible audience we adopted in the title, usage of theological ethics that is found generally more commonplace among Christian ethicists. But it is a moral theological text that describes in some detail the material that now I am going to conclude this six-part series with, and I do recommend it for your consideration. The question of virtue is one treated by both philosophers and Christian theologians. The advantage that the Christian theologian, however, possesses when it comes to talking about virtue is that he can talk not only about the virtues of human nature, if you will, the human virtues, he can also talk about what the tradition calls, and I prefer to refer to as the infused virtues, that is to say, the virtues that themselves are dependent upon the life of grace, the Christian life, the life that God gives to each believer in his or her baptism. That is, the moral theologian, he or she, can talk about the infused virtues because they are virtues that exist within the life of faith. It is because we believe that God wants to strengthen us in our moral choices, because we know from Christian revelation that God wants to ensure that we remain on the way to him, on the way now is perhaps the best translation for ad finem. Because God desires this for us, which is another way of saying that he desires our happiness, he desires that we be with him forever indeed, that we have confidence that he bestows not simply moral guidelines and direction, not even moral ideals by which we should strive to live, 
but he supplies as well the capacity, the ability, the power, if you will, to fulfill those moral norms, precepts, guidelines, to achieve those ideals, or to use language that is more traditional, if less familiar to the ethicist, to reach the end, to embrace the good ends of human perfection that themselves conduce or introduce us into the fellowship of the saints. Some of the virtues that the moral theologian talks about, only the moral theologian can talk about because they are the virtues of the Christian life. They are called the divine or theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. These are the dynamisms that arise within the soul of the Christian believer, within the baptized, and which unite the believer to God in ways that are specific to each virtue. Faith, we know, unites our mind and hearts to the truths we must believe about God and about the things of God. These truths are summarized in the creed that we recite each Sunday at Mass. They are truths safeguarded within the church, taught by the magisterium, and which form the composite of our Christian faith and understanding. We must believe them because they are truths of a kind that no amount of rational investigation, no amount of inquiry can lead us to accept that God is three in one, that Jesus is God, true God, light from light, born of the Virgin Mary, and so forth. The virtue of hope relates us to God in another way. It's a more directly affective virtue, if you will, a virtue of the will, whereby we, with great confidence, trust that God will, in fact, make it possible for us to live the good life, to fulfill the commandments of the gospel, to live a life of the Beatitudes, such as are found in the fifth chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. Hope encourages us to avoid both presumption and despair. Presumption, a vice, I should add, that moral theologians need to pay a great deal of attention to, precisely because it is the vice that softens us with respect to attention to the moral order, to the truth about the moral life, and leads us to think that the way the ad finem admits of deviations and contortions and transmutations, that is to say, of sins, that in fact form no part of God's plan for our happiness. Despair, on the other hand, leads us to black and negative feelings about our failures and weaknesses. Despair is a terrible sin, very little confessed, I suspect, and yet works great harm for souls who somehow are deeply persuaded 
by their own sins or the sins of others, that there is no good God or good end to arrive at. Charity, of course, queen of the theological virtues, and the one that remains, that abides, as St. Paul teaches us, it abides because in the end, the communion of divine fellowship that we enjoy for all eternity is already begun here below in the capacity given to us by God to love him as a friend and to love the neighbor as ourselves. These virtues, which summarize, if you will, the great themes of the Christian life, they are a way of organizing what it is that Christ himself teaches us in the scriptures. These virtues are of interest to the moral theologian because they form the matrix in which every Christian believer must undertake this journey. They form the foundation for every act of love that we commit, for every choice of those things, the Ea, that lead us to the end. And yet, Christian life is a human life, a human life elevated to be sure by these divine energies of faith, hope, and charity, but a life that still must contend with the realities that exist in the world and which grace does not change or destroy, but rather perfects and makes holy, sanctifies, consecrates, if you will, in the way in which the priest at Mass consecrates the Eucharistic elements transubstantiates them, turns them into new beings, in this case the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, that same kind of transforming action that is at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration and of our Eucharistic worship is also at the heart of the moral life. For faith, hope, and charity transform the moral virtues, turning them, if you will, now into properly Christian virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. I should say more clearly there, transforming the human virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance into real endowments for the Christian life. And with these virtues, come other gifts and charisms, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are recorded in the canonical scriptures, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. And to these can be added all of the other charisms, gifts, endowments, that we find spoken about within the pages of the New Testament, especially perhaps in the letters of St. Paul, where he expounds in great detail what it means to be a Christian and what are the features of life that is lived within Christian community. It's an overwhelming package that God offers us 
it's an overwhelming feature of the big picture here that our insertion into it is one that is strengthened by the life of Christ himself. Indeed, all of the virtues that I have mentioned are virtues that, as one author puts it, makes us look like Christ, gives us the face or image of Christ himself. That insight is especially important when we recall that from the beginning of our discussions, we have insisted that the moral theologian looks upon the human person as imago Dei, as made in the image of God. To become like Christ, to grow in the likeness of Christ, is not simply a metaphor. It is, I submit, an analogy because of the way in which the virtues work, that is to say, as habits whose job is to qualify, that is to say, to make us to be of a certain kind, and in the context of moral action, to be of a certain kind means, in a word, to be of a certain kind of character. The word character is familiar to us. We know some people have a reputation of enjoying a good character, and there are others, in a word, to be of a certain kind of character. The word character is familiar to us. We know some people, one of patient, of enjoying a good character, and there are others, unfortunately, whose character is judged less favorably. The word habit in English is an unfortunate one for many reasons, because the English word now connotes a quality that is not always an inviting one, as it suggests routine, that which happens almost without our thinking about it. The habit of doing the laundry, you do it quickly. The habit of doing the dishes, you do it quickly without thinking about it. It is, of course, a better thing to know how to do laundry and dishes and do other things, work on the computer, for example, than not to know how to do them. And yet, once we have acquired those kinds of habits, we tend to think that they are part and parcel of our ordinary equipment for meeting the demands of life, and we are not so much inclined to want to think that those are the features of our personality that are the most important, or the most distinguishing, or that make us most to be who it is that we are. By contrast, when we speak about virtues as habits, it is my custom in order to avoid the connotation of routine that the English word has acquired, to retain the Latin term habitus. When we speak about the virtues as habitus, we're pointing to a different kind of quality or transformation that goes on in the human person. It's a transformation now of our capacities of soul, a transformation 
of our inner being, if you will. It's a transformation, one could say, of our personality that allows us to engage in the good actions that lead to our perfection and completion and happiness in a way that is according to the standard description found even in ancient philosophers, prompt, joyful, and easy. Prompt because something of struggle is removed from virtuous action. Joyful because the person who possesses the habitus, the good virtue, finds delight in doing what it is that the virtue requires. Think when you first learned how to use the computer, I suspect few among us are able to escape that now. None found it a joyful activity, unless you had prior training in mechanical engineering or electronic engineering. All of us found it baffling and confusing, and yet now, after some 20 years, I think, for the personal computer, many of us, despite occasional glitches, have developed the habitus. We know how to use it. It may not be a friend yet, but we know how to use it, and there is some joy and promptness in the way in which we work on the computer. And there is ease. Ease because the actions that virtue enable in us are actions that flow, after all, from within us and flow now without the kind of interior struggle, without the kind of anxiety or tension that sometimes, sometimes arises in us when we are confronted with serious moral questions. Let me give an example that might help to point out that all of us possess many, many more virtues than perhaps at times we are advert to. Take, for example, the virtue of temperance with respect to food. And while it is true at certain times of the year or in certain circumstances, the temptation to exceed reason's limit with respect to foodstuffs is one that most of us have to contend with. The fact is that we have, if we enjoy good health, which I assume would be part of the requirement for engaging in study such as that provided by the International Catholic University, the fact of the matter is that we have become accustomed to follow a good diet. And the knowledge that we have perhaps sufficient discretionary funds at hand to buy out the whole bakery doesn't pose at each moment for us a serious and angst-ridden challenge that we might go down there and buy not just one pie for dinner, but every pie that exists in the bake shop because 
we like pi so much. And you can multiply the examples, extend and include as well to such things as beer and wine and intoxicating beverages, the virtue of abstinence, sobriety. You can extend it to many, many other examples in your life, including something as simple as sleep, although everyone has an occasional lazy morning, for the most part, we get up and we do our work. And we do it with promptness, with joy and with ease, to the extent that we do not find the activity of eating a balanced and healthy diet, following, observing a balanced and healthy diet, or getting up and taking charge of the day's activities to be something that produces in us a strong sense of aversion, which of course would be the opposite of joy, a strong sense of difficulty, which would be the opposite of ease, or a hesitancy, which would of course be the opposite of promptness. And if you think about your lives, you will be able to discover many virtues that you already possess. And in doing that, you perhaps will come to a greater appreciation of how it is that one can grow in virtue and make those patterns of already observable in your life in very significant areas apply as well to other areas where the question of moral choice and decision may still require some strengthening in order to choose the good with promptness, joy, and ease. If you count up all of the particular virtues that St. Thomas, for example, who is the moral theologian guiding these lectures, enumerates in his Summa Theologiae, you come to over 50 different kinds of virtues that are necessary for the complete, happy, and perfect life. It would perhaps require a special virtue now to enumerate them all, to describe them, and to begin to think about how each one points out an area of human life in which we need strengthening in order to achieve the perfection of the good, indispensable for the human person. And that is why the tradition recognizing that to enumerate every virtue itself could become a burdensome task is content to speak about the four virtues of the Christian life, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, virtues that first make their appearance into the theological tradition in the Old Testament wisdom literature, and to agree that these virtues cover the main areas of human life that require the perfection and strengthening that virtue as a habitus achieves. Briefly, let me point out to you the particular feature of the human person that each of these virtues on Aquinas' account strengthens. Prudence, of course, 
is a strengthening, indeed, a sanctification of the intellect. It is the virtue of practical reasoning. It is the virtue that strengthens our minds in order to know the truth and to see how that truth, indeed the truth of the eternal law, applies to each and every moral choice, what we've been calling those things, the Ea, those things that make up our lives. Indeed, here we're talking about our Christian lives. Prudence is a very special virtue insofar as while it sanctifies the intellect, for Aquinas at least, it is not simply a virtue of the intellect. It is a virtue that is related as well to the world of appetite, both the rational appetite, which is the will, and our sense appetites, both irascible and concupiscible. There is not time in this lecture to describe how it is that prudence and the moral virtues relate one to the other and come together to form a composite of virtue for the Christian. But I do want to recommend to those of you who are following these lectures and taking the course that you study this material very carefully. And here again, I can point to my own text, The Moral Virtues and Theological Ethics, where this subject is treated from a theological point of view, and I can also refer you again to Professor McInerney's Ethica Thomistica, where he gives a similar account from the point of view of the moral philosopher. The remaining moral virtues, the human virtues that become transformed now by our life of faith, hope, and love into Christian virtues, are the virtue of justice, fortitude, and temperance. Justice is traditionally considered a virtue of the will insofar as it has to do with establishing a world of righteousness or rectitude, a just world, by our rendering what is just, what is the due to another. It is, of course, a virtue of tremendous complexity precisely because the dues that are owed one to another, dues owed not only between individuals, but from an individual to the common good, to the community, if you will, and also the community to the individual, distributive justice. These various aspects of justice include almost everything that transpires within our civil society, and indeed, for that matter, governs everything wherein we stand in relationship to another, even when the other is God himself, such that the virtue of religion is a part of the virtue of justice, the piety that we exhibit to our parents, to whom we are bound in a special way because they have been the instruments of God's creative love in our, for us, brought us into being, as it were, 
These relationships set up a world of justice, that is to say, they establish certain debts that one must acquit oneself of. All of that has to do with choices that are made, choices that we make to render the due, to render the justum, the just thing, to those to whom it is due. Much moral and political philosophy and writing that we have today attempts to untie some of the knotty problems associated with the world of justice. I should mention, however, that much of that writing is hampered in my judgment, and I think from a Christian perspective, by the increasing tendency to remove discussions about justice from the big picture and to want to construct norms for justice, which after all are artificial by definition. That's another discussion and there are other lectures and courses within the offerings of the International Catholic University that address the interface of justice and civil society. If these questions interest you, I would encourage you to follow those lectures as well. The virtue of fortitude and the virtue of temperance are sometimes called the virtues of personal discipline. They have a role to play in the way in which we live out a just life, but they are not immediately ordered to our relationship to other people. Instead, the virtues of fortitude and temperance govern the way in which we conduct ourselves, the way in which we allow our emotional life to shape our actions and the choices that we make. Fortitude is the virtue of the contending emotions, as they're sometimes called, other the spirited emotions, the irascible appetites, these are all words that describe the capacities within us whereby we are enabled to sustain hardships, where we are enabled to react, we say almost by instinct, to those things that threaten us. If on a camping trip you open the tent door and discover a threatening animal that has come upon the camp during the night, the immediate reaction is to recoil, to defend oneself, surely is not to say, by all means, Mr. Bear, come into the tent and join our company. No, we react in a way in which we recognize the potential threat that a predator animal could pose to our well-being. Temperance, on the other hand, governs the world, not of those things that we need to fend off or to defend ourselves against, but rather those things which we are drawn to by reason of the basic biological needs of human nature. These are sometimes called the concupiscible appetites, the impulse emotions, the emotions that draw us towards those things which we need, like food, like drink, indeed even like the union of male and female sexual coupling that we need, that the species needs, 
in order to carry on. I've already mentioned earlier in another lecture that if God had made the intercourse between man and woman to be of the same difficulty as doing calculus or resolving an algebraic equation, the human race would have, it might be argued, died out a long time ago. That impulse that we experience and that everyone experiences within themselves towards these good things needs a tempering or moderation. Temperance is the virtue of moderation because they need to conform to a truth about moral choices, about moral actions, which is a truth that we have discussed briefly in the fifth lecture when we spoke about the evaluation of moral actions. I should mention here that for all of the moral virtues, justice, fortitude, and temperance, it is their relationship to prudence that ensures that each of these virtues places a particular moral choice or action within the context of divine truth. And prudence then becomes the virtue of translating that truth indeed into the very particularity that is inescapably part of every moral choice. However, the big picture we have been focusing on with the part of the big picture that the virtues bring us to is their transformative role in our lives. The virtues are habitus, which is to say that they are not simply the particular customs that some people may choose to follow or not. He's a brave person, the other is not. She's temperate, the other is not. No, the virtues as habitus transform us in a way that our moral powers of intellect, will, and appetite really are changed and become settled upon a way of life, settled upon moral choices, settled into a way of life that is in conformity with the truth, what indeed can be called simply the truth of life, the veritas vitae. It's an expression that comes from St. Thomas Aquinas as well. We began this series by referring to the Episcopal motto of Cardinal Cushing, who was the sixth Bishop of Boston, Ut cognoscante, it's the prayer that Jesus made at the Last Supper, that all of us might know the Father and the one whom he sent. The Episcopal motto of the present Bishop of Boston, Cardinal Bernard Law, is to live as Christ. It is taken from St. Paul's epistles. And the Veritas Vitae, as we have presented it here in the course of these lectures, the truth of life is indeed to live in Christ. For it is in Christ that we find the true way to the Father. That's the moral theologian's great interest and concern in trying to work out the admittedly difficult issues 
that moral theology, and for that matter, moral philosophy, present for our consideration. I want, in closing this series of six lectures, to insist upon this gift of the truth of life that Christ makes possible for us in his church. Many people, I suggest, are disinclined from wanting even to study moral theology, let alone to pursue it and let it govern the decisions that they make in their lives, because they are persuaded that in some way the moral theologian will impose restrictions which themselves are burdensome and which in some way will work against their happiness instead of creating it. Sometimes one hears references to what the church teaches, or the moral requirements of the Catholic Church in tones that suggest that these are burdensome and perhaps unnecessary obligations that should be modified or changed or in any event are unnecessary. If we understand the picture that I have sketched for you in the course of these six lectures, you should see that it is just the opposite. It is not true because the church teaches it. The church teaches anything because it is true, including the moral life. She teaches then a truth of life, a veritas vitae, and she teaches us to pursue that truth of life in Christ. I said a few minutes ago that the virtues help us look like Christ, to take on his features. And now, in closing these lectures, I want to say that everything we have spoken about in the course of these six talks is to help us understand what it means to live is Christ. And in discovering that gospel message, we are told and indeed comforted by the New Testament revelation that to live in Christ is to find life, is to find happiness, indeed is to find God. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.